we come this morning to our sermon passage and our living God speaks to us in his word and we're continuing on in the sermon series that we've been in in the book of Galatians. Um, And this morning we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 3. It's printed for you in your bulletin if you need it or you can turn there on your phones or in your Bibles. And as you're turning there, um, a couple of weeks ago I was at an arcade. I went bowling and uh, Buffalo Lanes in Irwin, the old Lowe's food back in the day. Um, anyway, so I'm at the bowling alley, and I go over to the arcade because Buffalo Lanes, like most bowling alleys, has an arcade. And like most bowling, uh, bowling alley arcades, you play the games, skee-ball, etc. You win the tickets, and the idea is you win enough tickets you can go to the, the thing and trade it in for great prizes. And if you're wondering, a Nintendo Switch Lite is 35,000 tickets. I did the math. It would probably work out if you can average 600 tickets per $10, which is reasonable on my skill level. It would be like six, $700 for me to win the Nintendo Switch Lite. I could just go buy one. Anyway, that's a, whole, that's a whole aside. So I'm at the arcade, loving it, looking around at the games, and I'm trying to figure out how can I use my tokens to maximize my tickets. Like what game is going to give me the most tickets? And I look... A ski ball, I'm kind of not good at that. I mean, I'm bad at bowling. Ski ball's the same thing. So I'm like, no, looking at these different ones. And I spotted a whack-a-mole. Now, I've got decent reflexes. Not, you know, I'm good with a hammer or with a mallet. So I'm like, whack-a-mole it is. And I put my tokens in. I'm ready to go. And I think I'm going to honestly impress Declan a little bit. So I got my mallet in hand. Game starts up. And you know the game, the mole pops up, you hit it on the head. It's really morbid, actually, when you think about it. Anyway, I'm hitting, do it, do great. Pops up, mole, hammer, great. I'm killing it. And then this one mole pops up, and I hit him, I think, pretty good, and he doesn't go down. And I register it like, well, maybe I just glanced him, and then he goes back down like I missed him. Now, maybe I just glance at him. When he pops back up, I'm going, I'm going to really give it to him. He pops back up. I smash into him like dead on hit. Nothing. He doesn't go down. And I'm getting a little bit frustrated. And I'm thinking, well, next time that mole pops up, I'm just going to give it to him everything I've got. I'm missing moles waiting for this guy to pop up. He comes back up. I hit him as hard as I can. Nothing. Now, you would think at that moment I could pull back and think and know something's wrong with the game. Not something wrong with me. I'm not, I'm trying to play a broken game. You can't win a broken game. Eventually I got frustrated and I just walked away. I bring all that up because what we tend to call religion and think about uh, as religion in our world is a broken game. That's exactly what religion tends to be. A -a whack-a-mole game we think with our good intentions or our religious costume or our, our whatever, our good works, if we can accumulate enough of them, we've got the hammer, and when things pop up, we can knock it. But it's a broken game, and you cannot win a broken game. What happens is we think about God and us, and we think we know the way it's supposed to work because often we treat others in our relationships with them this way, that if we do enough good things... We do enough religious stuff. We find the right religious costume to wear. If we have these big emotional experiences or fake those emotional experiences, sometimes both, 
that if we do enough or we feel enough or we think enough that God will give us what we have earned. That he'll reward us. He'll give us everything we want and we won't struggle. And so we say, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to obey what God says. And then when things don't go well, we think, well, God dropped the ball here. But we're thinking if we play the game rightly, then we'll get the great job. Or we won't lose the job we have. If we play the game rightly, we'll find the perfect spouse and our relationships won't bring us grief. If we play the game right and we want kids, we'll have all the kids we want and those kids will be obedient and not have struggles of their own. And maybe we wouldn't say that I earn salvation from God, but we basically think we earn everything else. We might think, I don't earn salvation from God. He's gracious there. But everything else, it's basically a tit for tat. It's God giving me a paycheck for me putting in my time here. And so we play the game. We play the game. But it tears us to pieces. And part of what Jesus has done for us has come... He's come to free us from the broken game. Not to give us more power so we can play the broken game better. That's, I think, what we tend to think of as what Jesus does. But to free us from this idea of earning. To get that out of the equation of our relationship with Him altogether. Jesus came to reconcile us to God that we would be joined to him, and that we would find in him what the broken game of religion cannot deliver, the life-giving presence of God with us, a relationship with God entirely defined by his generosity, where he doesn't just give us good things, he doesn't just dole out tickets or gifts at the, you know, I'm pushing the metaphor here, the arcade, but where God doesn't just give us stuff, where God gives us himself. He shows us in Jesus, God with us and God for us. And now joined to God by faith in Christ, never God apart from us. This is the good news of the gospel. But that broken machine is enchanting. Because at that arcade, I kept walking away from it. But every time I'd walk past that whack-a-mole, I'm like, I'm, I think I could tear him up. I want to go back because the broken machine is enchanting. The gospel feels too good to be true or we actually still want to do stuff because then we'll have control or feel like we've earned something, whatever it may be. Part of the brokenness of our world that's yet to be healed is that even after we stare the glory of Jesus in the face, we kind of keep wanting to go back to the broken machine. And that's what Paul writes about here in Galatians chapter 3. This morning we're in... Uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain. So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. 
Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news of the gospel. That in this world where we keep going back to this broken machine, that you will not stop proclaiming to us the victory that you've accomplished on our behalf that is ours by believing you. Not by us earning, not by us doing anything to take the first step toward you and then you'll come to us, but entirely by you finding us in your kindness and generosity and working within us to renew our hearts that we would not go back to the broken machine, but that we would live day by day in humble reliance on you and your sufficiency and your intentions for us. I pray as we stare into the riches of your word this morning, move upon us by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts that we would see all that is ours in Christ. I pray this in his name. Amen. I mentioned it in the last few weeks, the situation that is going on in these Galatian churches. So Galatia was a region, think of it kind of like a county or a state in the Roman Empire. Modern day Turkey is like center, uh, center of modern day Turkey. And there's a number of different cities in this region. And the Apostle Paul, in his ministry, had gone out and some of the very first churches he planted were in this Galatian region. He goes out and he's in these cities, he's announcing the gospel, people are coming to faith, and he sets up structures of leadership and he moves on to the next town. That's basically his MO. That's what he does. And what's happened is that essentially there's a group of people that is following Paul around. And when Paul will leave a city, they will come in and they'll say, well, you know, Paul did announce to you Jesus, but he kind of only gave you half the the truth. He only kind of gave you half the gospel. Um, he wanted you to accept him. He wanted to be liked. And so he didn't tell you the whole thing. He told you to place your faith in Jesus. But he left you kind of half converted. If you want to really be accepted, if you really want assurance from God that you are saved, if you really want to walk in the power of God and overcome temptation and sin, then you've got a few more hoops to jump through. You need faith in Jesus plus becoming culturally Jewish. If you're a man, you need to be circumcised. If Whoever you are, you need to follow these dietary laws. And then you're going to prove that you really mean it. You need faith in Jesus plus something else. Now, I've often wondered, thinking about the Galatian situation, I didn't mean to rhyme there, um, but thinking about the, the, the things that are going on there, when these guys showed up and they started telling the Galatian Christians this, 
that faith in Jesus is not enough. Why didn't their alarm bells go off? And right away they go, no, this can't be right. I'm tuning this out. This can't be right. Because I know what we believed. I know what Paul said. I know he showed us how the gospel was true. And it looks like Paul wonders the same thing. You may have noticed when I started this passage, he's using some really strong language. Um, He comes out calling them foolish. He comes out and says, essentially, I don't understand. It almost seems like somebody has put a hex on you. Someone's enchanted you. In Greek, that literally says somebody put the evil eye on you. He doesn't literally mean it's magic, but he's just perplexed. How in the world did these teachers come in and you heard and knew and believed the gospel and they're telling you you need more than faith in Jesus and you're listening to them? Now he calls them fools here. I'm not going to start calling people fools and neither neither should you for the most part. Um, But him using this harsh language here, I think it actually points to the depth of relationship he has with them. Um, He doesn't expect them to hear him call them that and feel alienated. He expects it to be like smelling salts where they hear this man who cares for them use this kind of strong language. It's it's like when a kid's running out in the street and you might yank them up. You might scream in a way you wouldn't normally. It's a serious situation. But do you know what? When I step back and think about it, I think I do understand why the Galatians found this Jesus plus so compelling why they thought maybe we need to go back to a broken machine there's a couple different reasons i'll list them here Um, the first one is that the gospel honestly seems too good to be true seems too good to be true and honestly the gospel looks like bad math it looks like bad math and one of the accusations that early christians faced and Christians have faced throughout history, is that if the gospel is true, that God justifies the ungodly by faith and not by works, then God's a terrible judge. Then he looks at a situation and he judges wrongly. Now that's not true, of course. We know that the truth is that in Jesus, God has made a way for him to justly judge sins on Jesus. Removes it from us. So the sins are punished. They're not winked at. They don't go away. Jesus absorbs the wrath that sin deserves. So all that remains for us is freedom and life. And so God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. But honestly, grace is hard to comprehend. Doesn't look like it matches up well in the spreadsheet. And that's got to feel like it's too good to be true. And so when these false teachers arrive in Galatia and they start telling the Galatians, you can have faith in Jesus plus this other stuff that you do, they're thinking, well, this actually makes more sense. This makes a little bit more sense. And then maybe we can protect God's reputation. Maybe there is something we can do to earn our place here. So that's the first reason reason that the gospel seems too good to be true. The second is this, the gospel is utterly offensive, and it seems foolish. Think about it. Our God came to earth, took to himself a human nature, and where did he go? Relatively backwoods, unimportant place. And he lived in in obscurity for three decades. And when he started his ministry, it lasted a mere three years, and at the end of it, he was crucified in this collusion between religious and political leaders. That looks like failure 
It looks like failure. And the idea that the shame of the crucifixion becomes the place of salvation, I mean, frankly, if we don't look at what the crucifixion is and recoil in horror a little bit, if it does not offend our sense of uh, propriety, then I don't think we've completely grasped what it was. Crucifixion was a, a, a means of execution that was uniquely designed to debase and dehumanize. It was, it was a, a means of ex- execution that was solely reserved for the lowest members of society, slaves. It's a disgusting thing. And the crucifixion of Jesus is the most godless moment, God-forsaken moment in entire human history. And the fact that Jesus on the cross said it. God, why have you forsaken me? It's kind of baffling, honestly, that for us, crosses are decor. They're things we put on our wall. I'm not shaming. I've got crosses on my wall at home. We wear them on necklaces. That's like us wearing a a syringe from a lethal injection or wearing a necklace of of an electric chair or a guillotine. It's a disgusting, horrible thing. In the first century, when the gospel was not believed, when it was preached and not believed, it was scoffed at and it was mocked. It seemed outlandish that God would come to earth and show up in weakness. That God would would go out of his way to go into darkness and shame and foolishness. And in fact, that the, the you know Paul even quotes this scripture here that talks about cursed are all who uh, are hung on a pole. That means of death, even in the Old Testament, was seen as uniquely shameful. To lift somebody up to be a, 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 a thing to be mocked at as they're dying. The false teachers weren't telling the Galatian Christians that the cross wasn't important, but they were adding something to it that could maybe make that feel a little less uncomfortable. They were adding to it religious rules that operate kind of in every religion in the world. Here's your things to do, and God will be happy with you. And maybe they're recoiling at the reality of the crucifixion and chasing after something that looks a little more acceptable and civilized. So the gospel seems too good to be true. The gospel seems offensive and foolish in our world. Uh, The next one jumps off from there. Living out the reality of the gospel is difficult. It's difficult. It makes demands on us that would be easier to turn away from. It is hard to live a life that does not write people off. That does not just automatically say, well, they are in this political party. I'm I don't even need to pay attention to them. They're from a different culture. Well, I can excise them from from my mind. To live out the idea that everyone has inherent dignity and worth and to make that a practical reality that controls how we interact with each other, how we spend our money, how we spend our life and time, those kinds of things, it is hard. It is much easier to not care. Or to rationalize not caring. It is hard to live a life that cares for the poor and the outcast. And early Christians were often mocked for their compassion. One of the first things Christians were mocked for, there were two things actually. 
It was not uncommon in the Roman world that if you had a child that you did not want, usually a girl, you were trying to have kids, you wanted a boy. If you had a girl and you didn't want a girl, you would just literally leave them exposed on a trash heap. A little baby. You'd just throw them out. Christians would go and find those babies. They'd go to the places where they knew kids were being disposed of in that way. And they would adopt them. The other thing was that early Christians began to care for the bodies of the dead. And not just Christians who were dead. They cared for dead bodies. They didn't allow them to be destroyed or defaced. It was a remarkable thing in that world. To to see and to lean in on the reality of human dignity. Early Christians were mocked. For that And it, it didn't end there. I was listening to a history podcast recently about the rise of Nazism in Germany, the rise of fascism in the 20th century. And, and those movements were very youth-focused. They were always focused on strength and vitality. And in fact, the Nazis would uh, disregard and disdain Christians because they said, you champion those who are weak. You guys are the reason why our nation is weak. Because you won't, you know, keep people who aren't physically ideal from having kids. You place the weak in places of honor. We should just kill them. Because we got to get our gene pool nice and strong and vital. Christians were foolish in such a world. And, and frankly... That, that Nazi ideology is just the ideology that works in our world cranked up to 11. We live that way too. That the world is for the young and the energetic. That's an that's a Emerson quote on a calendar I've got at home. The world belongs to the young and the energetic. That that is what matters, strength and vitality. So the gospel is difficult to live out. It feels like a waste of time and money to a surrounding world. And on top of that, there's all kinds of social difficulties that could happen. In the first century, people would come to faith and they would lose their family. Someone would come to faith and they would be divorced by their spouse. They would maybe lose their job and friendships. And these folks that are telling the Jewish or the Galatian Christians, if you just follow some Jewish customs, it'll be easier. We're telling the truth. Because Judaism was a religion that was accepted in the Roman Empire. It was tolerated and official. And these young Christians start coming up and they're, they look ridiculous. Well, if you can take on the outside facade of this established religion, then maybe some of the heat will be taken off of you. So the gospel seems too good to be true. It's offensive and foolish. Living out the reality of the gospel is difficult. And the final reason that I think that they gained a hearing in, with those Galatian Christians is because the ongoing struggle with sin is hard. You know, we can talk about and think about uh, salvation in Christ as having three tenses, a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. The past tense is that we are freed from the condemnation of sin. The guilt of sin. That's past tense. That's taken care of. We don't have to worry about that anymore. The present tense is that we are being freed from the power of sin. We confessed earlier with the words of the Westminster um, Catechism about what sanctification is. That's what that is. It's us being saved in the present tense as we are renewed in our whole person 
after the image of God, and we're being enabled to live unto righteousness, to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. And then salvation has a future tense where we're even saved from its presence in the new heavens and new earth, and God has healed all things. But that present tense, where we are right now, it's hard. It's hard. I wish there was a switch that I could flip and I'd be done struggling with selfishness and temptation. Done struggling with sin. And it looks like the Galatian Christians were thinking along these lines. And they were thinking, maybe these ceremonies and things they're trying to get us to do, well, I don't know, has some power in it. Almost like a magic trick. Maybe we can do this thing and suddenly we're going to be enabled to... Uh, more easily overcome temptation. Maybe this is the way to maturity. We can do these steps. I can play the machine the right way and I won't struggle with sin as much. I think they were tempted by these ideas that faith in Jesus isn't enough and I think that a lot of those things I just mentioned are why we can be tempted to come back to a broken machine that can't deliver where we come back to these weird, these religious things that cannot come through. Because the gospel seems too good to be true. It looks like bad math. It's offensive and foolish. Living out the reality of it's difficult. And we got this ongoing struggle with sin. And we think maybe if I got really devout and I prayed five times a day, if I did these things, if I could figure out the right rules to follow, I won't struggle anymore. But friends, the truth is, that's a poison well that is bringing earning into our relationship with God. And when we bring earning into our relationship with God in any form, it destroys our hearts. Everything I've said is to say, I get it. It's hard and you want to be able to do something. It's hard to process what it means to go back to the gospel, which I preached about last week, when you feel foolish. It's hard to go back to the gospel when you're struggling with sin and selfishness. You say, I'm going to go back to the gospel, but it feels like you're not doing anything. When you mess up and you think, well, no, I am profoundly loved. In that moment when guilt is overriding your soul, when you really have messed up, it does not feel like you are loved. That does not feel like a practical reality. It feels like a story we tell ourselves. We want a lever to pull. We want a button to press. We want a game where we can do this and this will happen. Because maybe we think that if we can just get our hands on the mallet and get a really good square hit, then the mole will go down. The game will work. We'll get the tickets we want. But the truth is, maturing as a Christian, growing in our faith, persevering with its difficult is not ever a matter of us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's not a matter of us finding the inner will to keep going. Because to treat anything as a list of stuff to do to make God love us more or to get God to give us more stuff is to introduce a broken game into our relationship with God, and it is impossible to win at a broken game. Maturity for us is going further up and further in to God's grace. That's what the journey is. It's not moving on to something else. It's looking out and realizing that the vista in front of our eyes is God's grace. 
And that as we move forward in life, we are moving further into realizing His kindness and His love for us. He has not brought us into His household and invited us to call Him Father and to know ourselves as His delighted in daughters and sons for us to introduce a thing thinking, well, if I do this, Dad will love me more. He hasn't said that. He does not want that. That's not the relationship He sent the Son of God, Jesus to die on a cross and rise from the dead to give us. Maturity for us is further up and further into God's grace. It's a gradual awakening to realize that all good comes from Him, that we are carried along by His love, that it's all grace, and that grace, this is important, is not a thing. Grace is not a thing. Grace is God. Grace is a person. God gives us Himself, not just some stuff. Here's the true blessing. The ultimate gift to us in the gospel is not a thing. God is profoundly generous, of course, but the remarkable thing, the most remarkable thing, and the thing from which all other good flows is that God gives us Himself. It's easy for us to think of God like a really great philanthropist. You know, I looked it up the other day. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has given away $79 billion. And they can show you where this money has gone and the impacts that it has made in these communities. But do you know what the vast majority of the recipients of that $79 billion do not have? A key to the Gates household. They have some good gifts that have been given to them. And they can be proud of that. And this is not to knock down Bill and Melinda. I mean, that's a great use of wealth, is to help other people. But that generosity did not come to a key to the household. It did not come with their personal phone number. It did not come with a relationship. God gives incredible gifts, but the greatest gift is that He gives us Himself. He doesn't ask us to play a game or to jump through hoops. He sets His affections on us from eternity past, and He works all things out so that we might be found in the darkness of our world. He chases us into our darkness. He carves out a place for us with Him, and with the wood and nails of the cross of Jesus, He builds a room for us in His household. And this is something that He does not ask us to earn or upkeep, upkeep with our actions, not even a little bit. He announces it to us. He says, this is yours. We receive it by faith. And it is ours. You know, earlier we read a passage from the book of Romans, another letter that Paul wrote about 10 years after Galatians. And there he speaks of Abraham. And I want to point something out that when he's speaking about Abraham, he doesn't say that Abraham believed in God. It's talking about Abraham hearing this promise, placing his faith in the ability of God to come through in what he said. It does not say that Abraham believed in God. It says that Abraham believed God. We treat God like a fact to know. Then we'll miss the point. He's not in our world asking us to believe some true things. It is good to believe true things. But this is a relationship of trust. When we place our faith in Jesus, it is not placing a faith in, in a prospectus of, 
Like, here, invest in this. Here's a prospectus for you to look through. Here's a projected earnings on, over time. No, we believe God. It is a relationship of trust. Not just believing some stuff, it is believing Him. Now, God had told Abraham he would be, what, the father of many nations. But at the time, Abraham was an elderly man, no children. His body was as good as dead, and his wife Sarah's body was as good as dead as far as bringing forth children. Yet Abraham believed God's word more than his eyes could see, more than he could feel with his heart. He believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. He heard God's promise, and he threw everything in on the fact that God was faithful, that God had made a commitment about what God was going to do, and if God says he's going to do it, he'll do it. Now, what's announced to us this morning is not that we're going to be the father of many nations. We're not little Abrahams in here. And what's promised to us is not that we're going to have a promised child. But what is promised to us is that sin is not the final word about us. That the sin that feels so powerful, the sin that plagues our hearts, that selfishness that will not go away, has to give way to God's intentions for us. Just as surely as uh, the, the, the body of Abraham and the body of Sarah, unable to bring forth a child, God spoke and it happened. His promise was sure and it happened. The same is true for us. You may feel utterly unable to overcome that belaboring sin that will not get off your shoulders. You may believe your selfishness has not gone away so far, it's never going to happen. But the truth is, God has said what His intentions for us is to redeem us fully, to renew us in our whole person after His image, to free us from even the presence of sin and the new heavens and new earth. And that means if He began that work in us, then He's going to see it through. Our struggle with sin, our struggle with selfishness, has an expiration date, but His love does not. God will vindicate our trust in Him, even when the gospel feels foolish, even when we are struggling to put one foot in front of the other, even when we fail or we relapse or we betray. He has set His affections on us, and He has promised, and this is a promise that we can hear and trust, not just believe in God, but to believe Him, not because we are able, but because He is. We can believe Him. And in the here and now, God gives us His life-giving presence. That's what the Holy Spirit is. It's not a force. It's not an energy. The Holy Spirit is God's presence with us. It is the fulfilling in this broken world of His promise to be our God and us to be His people. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a down payment or pledge, as the New Testament talks about, of the completion of His work to make all things new. In the here and now... God's Spirit awakens us to the reality of Him. He sweeps us up into His mission. He testifies to us that we are God's children. And He enables us to call upon Him, not just as distant King, but Abba, Father. This intimacy of calling Him Father. And if He is our Father, then we are His children. Not His tools, not His instruments, not pieces on a chessboard for him to move around, but his living, breathing children who are delighted in, who are more and more coming to realize the glory of what that means. I have often prayed for God to use me, and I have increasingly become more and more uncomfortable with that language. 
I want God to work through me. And when I say I want God to use me, I do mean he, I want Him to take my words and my actions and my life and use it for His glory, make it work for that. But He does not treat me like an instrument. I am not a tool in His hand. A lot of times I think we can think of ourselves as like a hammer. And God will use us as a hammer, as a tool to do His purposes. But how does a hammer hammer? Its head is smashing into the thing. God doesn't call us that. God calls us His children. He invites us to pray to Him as our Father, not our carpenter, though Jesus was a carpenter. Our Father who is in heaven. And friends, when God gives us Himself, He also gives ourselves back to ourself. When we come to Him, we find in Him who we truly are. And we find us truly alive and following him as our father we learn to walk and talk the way that all children learn to walk and talk taking cues from their parents and we find that we are lovely because we are loved and we are loved into loving so I I say all of this and close we've got to leave that broken game alone It poisons our relationship with God. It is not what He has for us. We are invited to get earning out of our vocabulary as far as our relationship with God entirely. For that to be gone. Because we are carried along in His generosity and His love for us that we did not earn and so we cannot lose. Our home is with Him. He will see His intentions through. He is faithful to do it. So let's start try, stop trying to earn what's already ours in Jesus. And may his love for us be the foundation of our everything. And we find in him justification by faith, but also growth in grace, sanctification. Growth in grace, not works. Knowing that he is at work within us to heal us and make us new. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your intentions for us. That you are a God who makes promises and you keep those promises. That you spoke your word all those many years ago to Abraham. You continued to speak your word and that in Christ your word literally put on flesh. He is the embodiment in a person of your intentions for us. And what do we see in Christ? That God and man are united together and one person never to be separated. And we are in Jesus by faith meaning that our place with you is secure, meaning that your intentions for us will be seen through. So I pray that you impress this on our hearts. Make us cognizant of the temptation to try to go back to a broken game, to try to introduce earning into our relationship with you. Help us put that to death, that we may walk in the freedom and the knowledge of being your sons and daughters, not your tools, not your instruments, but your children. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.